So many of you know that I like the Star Wars movies. I also like the Lord of the Rings, but another one of my favorite movies is The Princess Bride, movie from the late 1980s. And so I might give a few spoilers here, but it's a 40-year-old movie, okay? So in this movie, one of the central themes is the two main characters, Wesley and Buttercup, experience true love. And this true love is what enables them to make it through challenges and difficulties. And the narrator talks in the movie about true love is seldom seen, but true love is also the power that enables them to overcome the challenges and the many obstacles that they face. Now, as we go through today's message, we're going to come back to this idea of true love. Because when Jesus speaks on marriage and subsequently also on divorce, true love is not what he talks about. He talks about something else. And so we're going to be looking at that topic today, Jesus on marriage and divorce. And so we're in the midst of this series on Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, which looks at how Jesus talks about God's invitation to the kingdom. The kingdom of God is God at work bringing new life, bringing change to the world with Jesus as king. And the Sermon on the Mount is, one way to describe it, an invitation from Jesus to enter into this new way of life, to enter into a different way of living. It's also a call to be a different kind of people. Jesus wants the people of the kingdom, that is his disciples, his followers, those who put their trust in him, to live differently. And so as we enter into this, a few Disclaimers, caveats, if you will, that when we speak to divorce, one of the things I recognize is that probably everyone here has had their life affected some way by divorce. Not necessarily in your own marriage, but in the marriage of kids, of parents, of friends, of family. It's a hurt that tends to affect nearly every person. The other thing I'll say is when we look at this topic today, we're not going to have time to say everything the Bible has to say about this. So realize there are some things I'm going to leave out. But I also want to acknowledge there is pain involved in this. That the discussion of divorce can be painful. Also that some people here are married, some are not. And I also wanted to acknowledge in the midst of that, that we say when we speak of marriage, that marriage is not the end-all be-all. That not everyone is going to get married. And in fact, in the Bible, it doesn't describe marriage as the one way to follow Jesus. Paul even talks about singleness and in some ways elevates singleness over marriage. And so we don't want to highlight marriage as the only way to be a good follower of Jesus. Which sometimes within the church can happen where we elevate and say, well, you have to get married. And that's not what Jesus is saying. I like when Scott McKnight talks about the topic. He says, divorce is confusing because marriage is confusing. And by that, he simply means that the topic is confusing because there's so many different thoughts and ideas. So one of the things we need to do is pay attention to what does the Bible tell us about marriage, which then helps us subsequently understand what he means about divorce. So we're going to turn to our text. Our primary text will be Matthew 5 and 31 and 32. We'll also be looking at another passage in Matthew chapter 19. Um, the passage we read from Mark kind of sets some other context and shows us that it's a complicated topic. So Matthew 5, 31. And to Jesus speaking, he says, It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. 
And so Jesus is speaking here. He's been doing a number of contrasts in the Sermon on the Mount where he'll say something like, it has been said or you have heard it said, but I say to you. And what he's doing in part is establishing himself and setting himself up as the one who fulfills the law, meaning he's the one who rightfully interprets what God has said. He's also the one whom the law points to. He's helping us get to the deeper meaning of what God has taught. Moving beyond the surface level of here's the commands to obey to what sort of heart do we have to have? What sort of change needs to happen? And so the one question we might have is when Jesus says it has been said or you've heard it said, well, where would they have heard this? Where had they heard this? And in particular, they heard this part about divorce and this idea of a certificate from the book of Deuteronomy. How many of you have the book of Deuteronomy on your top five Bible list to read? Probably nobody, right? I mean, I, not me either. It's not exactly, it's Deuteronomy is the second law. It's just to give you, it's a lot of rules and a lot of strange things. And a lot of things go on. And one of those is in Deuteronomy chapter 24. I'm going to read just a part of it. Deuteronomy chapter 24, beginning at verse one says this. These are the laws that God gave to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai, if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her. And so we want to note this word, this phrase, something indecent, because we'll come back to that. And then it says, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. And then it goes on and explains what happens if she gets married again and comes back to that. But a couple things that go on here that we should pay attention to. One was this question of what is something indecent? And this was one of the debates that was a topic in the day of Jesus. Was what did Moses mean when he talked about something later? And we'll come back again to the teaching of Jesus. In fact, we're going to go there now. So if you have your Bibles and want to flip to Matthew 19, because this topic comes up again. So Matthew 19, Jesus has some group of people come to him and they're challenging and testing him. And it says this in verse 3. Some Pharisees came to him, that is to Jesus, to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? And so now go back to Deuteronomy 24 and this question of something indecent. And one of the things we learn by reading history is that not everyone agreed even in Jesus' day. Sometimes we think that's something new for our day. That there's religious leaders and we all agree on everything. Or back in Jesus' day, they all agreed. Well, in Jesus' day, there were different schools of thought. There were these rabbis, and they often established schools or ways of thinking. And two of the primary ones were Shammai and Hillel. And Shammai and Hillel had different ideas about what something indecent was. Shammai was a much more conservative rabbi and said that divorce was only spoken about by Moses in terms of for sexual immorality, for adultery, for infidelity. And so that was Shammai. Now, Hillel, on the other hand, took this phrasing of Moses for anything indecent to basically mean just about anything and everything that displeased the husband to the extent of things like burning your dinner. And so in the school of Hillel, you know, your wife burns your dinner, that's grounds for divorce. Give her the certificate and send her out the door. But Jesus wants to point to something different. 
And so Jesus responds to this question of the Pharisees about well, Moses giving this certificate of divorce. And Jesus says, haven't you read? And this is a great question because he's talking to Bible scholars here. People who would have memorized the books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They would have these soaked in them. They would have memorized and been teaching them. And so he kind of says, well, haven't you read? That at the beginning, the creator made them male and female. Well, where's that coming from? Genesis chapter 1. So certainly they've read this. And so Jesus is being in part a little facetious, a little sarcastic. And then he says, and for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so Jesus is responding to this question about divorce, and he's taking them back and saying, let's go back to God's design and God's purpose. You're asking about divorce, but we need to address the question of divorce from the perspective of marriage. And the perspective of marriage is given by God in Genesis chapter 1, where he says the two will become one, man and woman together in marriage. And so then the Pharisees, they go on and they ask about this certificate. They say, well, why then, they ask, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And in a sense, they say, well, but Moses was telling this. Moses didn't command that. Moses gave that as part of the thing. He didn't say you have to send the wife away, but he said when it happens, you give this certificate. And Jesus says, well, why did Moses do that? Matthew chapter 19, verse 8. Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce your wife because your hearts were hard. But it was not this way from the beginning. So again, Jesus goes back to this creation design. And he says, sure, Moses told you to have a certificate and to give it to a woman when you're divorced. But that purpose behind that was an act of God's mercy. Because if we take ourselves back a couple thousand years, in those days, divorce primarily happened from the man to the woman. And the woman who was divorced was put out of the house. And when she was put out of the house, she had no financial means. She was shamed within the community. It was difficult to marry. So the idea behind the certificate of divorce was at least a way to say she's been legally divorced. She's been divorced within the law, which then allowed her to remarry and to establish that society. And so what Jesus is saying is, yeah, people would get divorced and God said, gave this command to give a certificate of divorce. But the primary purpose of that was an act of mercy was an act of his grace, a way to protect vulnerable women as they were divorced. And so this is what Jesus says in his sermon on his mount, that divorce is not God's plan, but there are cases where it's permitted. And so he's trying to get at this fact that sometimes divorce happens and God works within that to try and mediate, to try and alleviate all of the challenges and hurt behind it. And so as Jesus is getting at this, we have this topic of, God's plan from the beginning was what? Man and woman together in a lifelong covenant commitment. And then Jesus shows in Matthew 19 this, this discussion of the picture of marriage. And the picture of marriage is man and woman ruling together. 
living together in harmony, together as the image of God and the image of woman as a suitable helper or the helper corresponding to a helper. This word, this Hebrew word, Eitzer, doesn't necessarily mean a lesser. We think of a helper as like, we have in school, I often think of sometimes the, the teacher will ask a student to be his, his or her helper. And the helper is less than, but as this word is used in Genesis and actually through most of the Old Testament, the word Eitzer, the word often translated helper, often refers to God. And most often refers to God. And so I like Carmen Joy Imes' translation as a necessary ally or an essential partner because we remember the story where God comes and man and says, it is not good for man to be alone, so I will create a helper suitable for him. In other words, he can't do what I have called him to do on his own, so I'm going to give him a necessary ally, an essential partner, and that's woman. And so that's the picture of marriage that God creates. And that's where Jesus begins. Jesus begins with this picture of marriage that God's design is a lifelong covenant relationship. And a covenant, not a contract, but a covenant. A covenant that means, and again, back to Scott McKnight, he describes covenants as being you're for and you're with somebody. And so in a marriage, a husband, a wife, they're for each other and they're also with each other. A marriage is a covenant, not a contract. A marriage is a covenant. It's not about how you feel. Remember, over 26 years ago when Christine and I were preparing for marriage and we were meeting with the pastor who was going to do our wedding, perform our wedding, and one of the things he reminded us of, and something I typically remind couples of when I perform a wedding, or officiate at a wedding, I should say, is that nowhere in the Christian wedding ceremony is the couple asked how they feel about each other. Nowhere in the Christian wedding is the couple asked how they feel about each other. Typically, there's something like what? I pledge in love, to love and honor, to cherish in sickness and in health, in rich for richer, for poor, all this language of what? Through no matter what happens, I'm going to stay committed. But it's never about, well, I'll stay committed as long as I still feel good about you. But again, the language of a marriage covenant is a commitment to stay together. It's not about true love. And so we come back to Wesley and Buttercup. And the idea of true love is true love is this way. And so Jonathan Haidt, a, a sociologist, wrote a book back in 2016 called The Happiness Hypothesis. Now Haidt's not a Christian but what he says about true love, I think, is a powerful statement as he looks and he understands what's going on in culture. And so this is how he defines and speaks of true love. He says, true love is passionate love that never fades. That's kind of the description in society. If you are in true love, you should marry that person. This is kind of the picture he's painting, that true love is his passionate love. And if you're in true love, you should marry that person. And if the love ends... You should leave that person because it was not true love. And if you can find the right person, you will have true love forever. And then what I like when he goes on, he says, you might not believe this myth yourself, particularly if you're older than 30. But many young people in Western nations are raised on it. 
and it acts as an ideal that they unconsciously carry with them, even if they scoff at it. And finally, he concludes this with this. But if true love is defined as eternal passion, it is biologically impossible. And so here's this sociologist, secular sociologist, talking about true love, and he's describing it as a myth. This myth that says, well, if you find true love, then you're going to stay married forever. And if you fall out of true love, well, then it wasn't really true love in the first place, and you should just separate. And then he essentially says this idea, this myth of true love is impossible. And that's what Jesus is getting at when he says, from the beginning, God's design was a covenant relationship. It wasn't about passion, but about commitment. And so Jesus' focus here is on God's desire and plan. But Jesus is also aware of not only Genesis 1 and 2, but Genesis 3. That God had a plan, but unfortunately there's sin and evil in the world. And that God knows of that sin and he regulates it. He tries to manage it, minimize it. God knows that divorce will occur. And so we have these rules given through Moses to kind of alleviate the hurt and the harm. So God seeks to minimize them. And so what is he doing? He's pointing to the ideal. The ideal is man and woman together in lifelong commitment to one another. And divorce is not just a free-for-all. It's not something, well, dinner was burned, something went wrong. I'm not really in love anymore. But instead, we need to have bounds. And I like what Howard, Stanley Hauerwas says here about this passage. He says, if we come to this looking for a reason to justify divorce, we miss the point. Jesus isn't talking about finding a way. But instead, Jesus is saying divorce is not ideal, but God permits it in the case of sexual immorality. When he says, but I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and he actually gives another reason. He speaks about abandonment. So in 1 Corinthians 7.15, Paul's talking about a believer married to an unbeliever. He says, but if the unbeliever leaves, let it be so. The brother or the sister is not bound in such circumstances. God has called us to live in peace. And what's interesting is this phrasing of under such circumstances. Uh, a scholar named Wayne Grudem did an extensive study on that phrasing. He found every time that phrase was used, it suggested that there were other possibilities. And so the sense is that there are multiple reasons. And so back to McKnight. And this is where I think it's best. When we think about a covenant as someone being for and with somebody, then a failure to be for someone or a failure to be with someone can create, and I'll use the quotes here, permissible reasons for divorce. A failure to be for or a failure to be with. So I would include in those kind of things a failure to provide and situations of abuse. Jesus isn't suggesting that it's never permissible, but he's saying that there are times, and so this language of being for and be with, this lifelong commitment can be broken. It's not the ideal, but it can be broken. Why? Because of human sin. And remembering this, that a permissible, and again, using that language, permissible divorce is not a necessary divorce. I remember years ago meeting a couple and their ministry was to other couples 
who had gone through affairs from one or the other spouses. And this couple had experienced the same thing. The husband had been unfaithful to his wife and gone through an affair. But they, through some hard, hard work, reconciled and continued and strengthened their marriage. And then they served as ministers to people going through those same things. They didn't simply look at what Jesus says. Well, well, he committed divorce. That's the end of the marriage. But instead chose to work at it. Does it always work out that way? No. Does it always work out that though one or the other tries really hard and there's attempts at reconciliation, does it always work out? No. But coming full circle, that's where Jesus is pointing. He's saying, here's the ideal, is that we work towards that, but also recognizes that sometimes we don't live in that ideal because we live in a fallen and a broken world. Now, I realize I didn't get to remarriage, and that's even more complicated. So if you have questions about that, come and see me. Send me an email, text, whatever. We can talk more about that. But I want to kind of work around and begin to think about this. What is Jesus pointing to in the Sermon on the Mount? He's pointing to lifelong marriage as the ideal. He's saying that followers of Jesus in his kingdom, that's what God's plan and design is. We are to work towards this. We are to seek peace and reconciliation. When there are troubles and challenges, we're to ask ourselves, how can we make this work? And it's seen in the context of what kingdom people look like. And so Jesus, just before this, has talked about the words we use. He's talked about lust. He's talked about these things. Later on, he talks about peace and reconciliation. So it's in the context of this saying, this is what a follower of Jesus looks like. Someone who seeks to live out a lifelong covenant relationship. But he's also saying there are cases where God in his mercy sees fallenness and again, I'll use it, permits divorce, allows it because of why? Go back to that. Because of the hardness of people's hearts. God recognizes that there are times where because of the hardness of people's hearts, a divorce may be a necessary thing. Where there's a hardness of heart where a man is abusing, physically abusing a wife or their children. Jesus doesn't look and say, but you need to stay here. He says, no, there's a hardness in someone's heart. Therefore, the woman can be leave that man and again it's not a command and this is where we have to be careful Jesus isn't commanding well anytime there's something wrong I'm commanding you to leave but instead he's allowing it this isn't again and going back to that it's not a case of divorce for anything and everything Jesus is making clear the school of Hillel was completely wrong this isn't a well you know we have irreconcilable differences because she likes Chevy and I like Ford. She likes to watch Netflix. I like to watch Amazon Prime. She likes macaroni and cheese. I like steak. Whatever it is. And I have seen and experienced marriages where it seems like, you ask, well, that's what the divorce is about? And Jesus is saying, the call as followers of Jesus is to work at it. The call of Jesus is not to ask, well, how can I get permission for divorce? The call of Jesus is not to look for the loophole, not to find that scripture and say, well, God says it's okay, so I'm going to do it, but instead to seek to live it out. But sometimes the reconciliation is not possible. When one refuses to be with or for, when there's a lack of repentance, a lack of forgiveness, there's abuse, 
and recognize that a brutal marriage is not a good thing. But in the midst of that, we, always, we also want to recognize this, that divorce is always a rupture. Divorce is always a rupture. There's always a brokenness. So we go back to Jesus' initial picture, and he talks about Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2. And he says, the man shall leave his family and join with the woman, and they shall become what? One flesh. And so what happens in the midst of a divorce? There's a tearing. There's a rupture. There's hurt and suffering that go along with divorce. Even when there's acrimony, even when there's so much unhappiness, even when there's abuse, there's something that's broken within. And also remembering that oftentimes in the case of divorce, in the case of marriage, what also goes along with that? Children. Children whose very being, they have come into being. Why? Because two people have been joined together. Their existence is the result of these two people being joined together. And now in a divorce, when those two people are ripped apart, it in some sense affects a child at their very question of who they are or what they are. And I want us to understand that because we want to see the hurt and the pain caused by divorce and keep that in mind. And we see that divorce results from sin, although it's not, it's not, that isn't a 50-50 thing. But divorce is always the result of sin of some kind. And I want to be clear on this, that divorce, and, and I think times have shifted somewhat on this, but there was certainly a time, and it may exist in, certainly in some churches, where divorce was seen as the irredeemable sin, almost as the unforgivable sin. I know older women who were divorced often abandoned by their husbands. Not, I mean, there wasn't a case of, there was any attempt at reconciliation. A husband just simply leaves and gets a divorce. And as a consequence, those women were unable to often serve in churches, unable to do things. Why? Because they were marked with a big D. That's not what Jesus is saying here. Jesus isn't saying this is the unforgivable thing. He's pointing to an ideal lifelong marriage, lifelong covenant. But also he's demonstrating God's mercy because God even in his mercy gave this certificate. And so as we conclude here, I want us to think about one couple things. One is balancing mercy and righteousness when it comes to divorce. That mercy, God showed mercy by giving this rule to Moses about the certificate of divorce. And so we're to imitate that same sort of act. When we see a couple, when we find someone who's been divorced or a couple who's going through that process, we're balancing mercy and righteousness. We balance mercy and we show compassion rather than judgment and shame. We also do what we can to help others live out the covenant. We don't simply give up, but instead we encourage people because we need to do this, church. Sometimes we hold up an ideal. We say, you need to stay together. God called you to live together, lifelong marriage. And then we kind of leave people on their own to figure it out. But what Jesus is saying is, if you are going to call people to this lifelong commitment, we need to work hard to help people live that out. We can't just abandon them. But we need to walk with them. When a marriage breaks, we mourn. 
but we're careful not to shame or treat as guilty of a special evil. And lastly, I think one of the things we can do as a church is consistently hold up the ideal of lifelong commitment. To look around and to see in the church the stories of people who have been committed to a lifelong commitment. This is one of our couples off today celebrating 41 years of marriage. I know many of you have got many more years than that of marriage, 50, 60 years. And we need to celebrate that. And we need to find ways for couples who have lived in marriage together for 40 or 50, 60 years to not only speak to, oh, everything's great and he loves me and he's the perfect man, she's the perfect wife and never anything goes on, but to say, sometimes things were hard. Sometimes it was difficult. But with God's help, I was able to keep that commitment. So I would encourage you who have been in marriage for a while to speak to couples at the beginning of their marriage and say, marriage sometimes is hard. To find those who are struggling and say, I know it's hard. How can I be there for you? How can I help you walk through this? How can I help you see what it looks like to go through these difficulties and challenge? How can I help you to remember and to honor those vows that you made? And maybe if you're at the start of your marriage and you're just beginning to seek out somebody who's been doing it for a while and say, how do I do this? What does it look like? I just, I've met couples and they'll say, oh, my wife and I have never had a fight. And I'm like, yeah, you're full of it. <laughs> if you've never had a fight, then there's something fundamental. There's, you've never had a, dis you've never disagreed over anything. Sometimes it means we're hiding things. And, and then what happens is if a couple lives in that delusion, I'm going to call it delusion that they never have a fight, then what happens when they do have a fight? When something serious happens and all of a sudden there's this disagreement, then they begin to think, well, what's wrong? Our marriage is wrong. We must, to help people understand that it's a normal part that, and when I use the term fight, I'm not talking dishes flying. and I'm talking just simply a disagreement. A disagreement and a difference of opinion about something in life, something about that relationship together. And couples need to understand there will be those times, and that's normal and natural, that the, the end of, or that a disagreement doesn't mean the end of true love. Or that the person you married isn't your soulmate, isn't your true love. It just means you're human. A disagreement just means. You're a person. And you have desires and wishes within you and sometimes are conflict. And it doesn't necessarily even mean that both are, that either or the other is being sinful or selfish. It can just simply mean the desires, the shapes, the wills are slightly different. And so, but God invites us to say, and Jesus points to here, he's saying, what does life look like in the kingdom? It looks like for a man and woman who've given themselves to marriage, it looks like a lifelong commitment. A lifelong commitment that it can only be kept through the power of the Spirit. Is it the only way to live as a disciple? No. Again, going back to that, singleness is a, a normal and a natural way to live as a disciple of Jesus. But for those 
who choose to enter into, who feel called to enter into, who enter into marriage together, Jesus paints an ideal, a picture. And that picture is one that we're invited to live into. And it's something we can only do through the power of the Spirit. Something we can only do with God's help. And something I would also argue we can do only with the help of those around us. Because I think that's one of the ways that God gives us the help to do what he calls us to do. Church isn't simply a place to come on Sunday morning. Church is a body of people brought together. Brought together to live under the grace of Jesus, to encourage one another, to speak to one another. To lift each other up, to pray for one another. So may we be the people that God has called us to be. Praying for, encouraging, and living out in marriage this faithfulness that God has called us to. Amen.